Hello? 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 Yes, this is MCO. Hello? This is MCO. Hello? Hello? This is another MCO and transmission. Okay, I'm going to go ahead and uh, get started, but feel free just to settle in uh, while I do. Welcome. Uh, my name is Michael. This is our Sutra Study Sunday. I'm here every Sunday night talking about different Buddhist texts, different Buddhist sutras. Um, and tonight we are doing a selection from the Maharatnakuta Sutra, uh, which of course is the great heap of jewels. And I want to do a little talking about this heap of jewels uh, tonight. But from the heap of jewels, we are doing a little sutra called, it's the Sutra of the Lay Woman. Gangotara. Okay. Um, um, yeah, so I have a few things to just say about this collection of sutras from whence this sutra, this little sutra of the laywoman Gangotara, of which it comes. But before I do this particular sutra, I want to talk a little bit about these collections of sutras and the way these work in Buddhism. I think it's it's, it's something that doesn't often get spoken about in in kind of Buddhist discourse. Um, I, I'll start with this because it's a short sutra. So we have a nice long night. So here's an idea I just want to remind you of in terms of what's going on in, in the world, right? So you've, you've heard of like the Bible, right? So the Bible is like, you know, arguably one of the more important books or scriptures in the world today. But... You know, what is the Bible? Well, the modern Bible, kind of King James, standard, you know, new edition Bible or whatever, is what is called the Old Testament and the New Testament. The Old Testament being this kind of rather an, kind of um, anthology collection of Jewish scriptures. Uh, and then the so-called New Testament being these kind of collection of originally four gospels for Stories of Jesus, stories about Jesus, collected sayings of Jesus kind of a thing. And then some epistles of different authors, letters, right? Letters of this guy, Paul. He was in jail. He was writing to all these different Christians. And they put all of that together and made a Bible, right? And it, that was a long process. And something that's interesting about the, the Christian Bible, of course, is that the, the format that it's in now, it took a while to get there. There were a lot more than just four Gospels, it was just that there was these four Gospels that eventually became codified and recognized as the official story, and the Gospel of Mary, and the Gospel of Judas, and the Gospel of all Thomas, and all these other Gospels, well, they were practiced in the world. They were represented other Christian communities with other Gospels. But again, the Catholic Church sort of rounded up all the loose Gospels and in a way, got rid of them and decided, no, this is going to be our collection. This is our, what in study of religion would be called a canon, a collection of writings, right? Um, and then, of course, the, the Quran is a collection of surahs. Surahs are these revelations that this prophet Muhammad received, and they progressively got longer and longer and longer, and then they put all the surahs, all these revelations together in one book, call it the Quran, Right? What I'm kind of getting at is that what defines or makes kind of a religion a religion is a collection of writings. And what often happens is, is there will be different 
groups that all claim to be the same religion, but they have different collections of writings. Uh, we have these Gospels, and we think Jesus is an, is an alien from another planet. Well, we have these Gospels, and we think he's the Messiah, the Jewish, you know, whatever. Well, we have these Gospels, and they tell us, so these represented different communities based on their collection of scriptures, right? I just wanted to put this out there that this phenomena of gathering together scriptures into a, a group and then saying, like, this is our, this is us, and we're going to exclude those and those and, say, and define ourselves based on this little group of scriptures. This is a very common theme, theme and a very common thing going on in the world. The Buddhists seem to have been doing it maybe as long as anybody. It goes way back. And so I just want to quickly introduce you to this term, the tripitaka, the tri or three pitaka. And this word pitaka uh, means a basket. And so originally the Buddhists carried their scriptures, their recorded sayings of the Buddha, and their rules for monastic behavior, and their commentary and lists of teachings. These three baskets were considered the foundation of what was Buddhism. And traditionally they said that the monks carried around the scriptures in these baskets from place to place to place, from vihara to vihara. And so that's where you get this idea of the tripitaka or the tripitaka, this collect, these three baskets. The sutras themselves, even the earliest sutras, you should know if you don't that this word sutra is a Sanskrit word, and the English word sutur, S-U-T-R-E, to sutra, to like sutra a wound, that comes from the Sanskrit, it comes from the word sutra. And what sutra means is to sow. Indeed, even the Germanic su, I believe, originally arrives from sutra, this, that idea. And what this suturing, the sewing together was, for Sanskrit, for people in India, is that you would have the collected sayings of like Patanjali or someone, the Yoga Sutras, for example. It's like, oh, he said this, he said that. Oh, and then he said that, and then he said that. And then we'll put them all together and stitch them together into a collection. And that's called a sutra, a stitched together group of, of sayings. So even the very idea of a sutra, one sutra, is actually a collection of sayings. Okay? Then what happens in the history of Buddhism is that there is this sort of discovery of these sutras that we've been talking about for the last few weeks, these Pranyaparamita sutras. Sutras talking about transcendent wisdom, the, the highest form of understanding within Buddhism. And these Pranyaparamita sutras were originally actually called the Bodhisattva Pitaka. This was the Pitaka or the basket of teachings for the Bodhisattvas. And if you weren't here in, uh, in all the past weeks, the Bodhisattva is this sort of um, a new, uh, represents a new movement in Buddhism of not just being a meditating monk, but being, well, being in the business of saving all sentient beings. That's what a Bodhisattva is in the business of. And so I didn't mention when I was talking about the Vajra Sutra last week and the Heart Sutra before that, and a few number of months ago, we talked about the 8,000 line Pranyaparamita Sutra. What I didn't mention last week and the week before is that there's a tradition or a story 
that a Buddhist monk named Nagarjuna went to a magical underwater world of shape-shifting serpent beings and was given a giant trunk. This is my trunk. Given a giant trunk full of these Pranyaparamita Sutras by a, a, a being named Muchilinda, a seven-headed cobra being. Anyway, so that's the story. I didn't tell you the myth- mythological story uh, the last few weeks. I was giving you a more straightforward, historical, scholastic understanding of where these came from. But what I want you to know is, is that these Pranyaparamita Sutras, they were all considered one sutra. The Sutra on Transcendent Wisdom, the Sutra on Pranyaparamita. And then as a collection, you get the Heart Sutra version of it, the Vajra Sutra version of it, all these different versions of it. But they're all part of a collection, right? And then in times past, um, I, I did one night on this Avatamsaka Sutra, or the Flower Garland. This is also, it's called One Sutra, But the very idea of it is that it's actually a flower garland, right? Like a necklace of flowers. And that it itself is actually a collection of smaller sutras. Two of the more famous are the Tenstasia Sutra and the Gandavyuha Sutra. But there's many, many more. And so these all get put together into a collection called this flower garland sutra. But again, it's a collection of little sutras. So you can imagine each sutra being like one flower in that garland, right? The Lotus Sutra as well, even though it says it's one sutra, it's actually a, you know, a lotus pond full of these little sutras. We read the Universal Gateway of Avalokiteshvara. We also read parts of the Medicine Buddha Sutra. So if you've ever read the Lotus Sutra, you may have noticed that it looks like a collection, because you'll have one part going on for a while, and then all of a sudden it's Shamanta Bhadra's sutra in there, and all of a sudden Avilokiteshvara. So it has the appearance of a collection. The Lotus Sutra is actually very interesting because it is playing with the very idea of a collection. And so it, it does this thing of almost turning itself inside out, where it kind of, the, the actual Lotus Sutra is nowhere to be found but it is somehow hidden within all these other little sutras. It's kind of a, a very mystical little sutra like that. And then tonight we're talking about the heap of jewels. So now we're not using the metaphor of a flower garland or a lotus pond. We're using the metaphor of a pile of jewels. And that pile of jewels could be understood a number of different ways, but not unlike the Avatamsaka Sutra, the Maharatnakuta, the, the heap of jewels, is actually 49 sutras altogether. And by most people's estimation, that's the heap of jewels, those 49 sutras. But I also want you to know that there's a beautiful um, term, if you will, in Buddhism where they refer to those little Dharma nuggets of wisdom as jewels. So in Buddhism, those little like pithy, Dharma nuggets, those are called jewels. And last week when we were reading the Vajra Sutra and it talked a lot about filling worlds full of jewels, there's also a way in which they might be referring to those types of jewels as well. Buddhism is very uh, poetic that way. It's operating on so many poetic levels um, that it's part of what I want to do these classes is really 
give you guys the vocabulary and the background so you can appreciate this poetics, these poetics that are going on. All right. Um, out of the heap of jewels, we've already reread the Sword of Wisdom a number of, uh, f- over a number of weeks, uh, many months ago. We read the Universal Gateway of Manjushri. So Manjushri Bodhisattva, his Universal Gateway is in this collection, whereas the Universal Gateway of Avivokiteshvara is in that collection. Uh, this is kind of a hodgepodge of sutras, the Maharatnakuta. There is a section on pranya. There is a section on wisdom, which is, I'm going to be reading from tonight. There is a section on the so-called pure lands and these other Buddhas. So not just the historical Buddha, but there's all these other Buddhas. So the Ratnakutna Sutra is this kind of like anything goes kind of a sutra. Whereas the Avatamsaka, all those sutras have a through line. They are all in a way connected. All the sutras and Lotus Sutra are kind of connected. There's a through line. This looks like maybe it's kind of just a bunch of leftovers, but I don't know. There's something very interesting about this pile of jewels, right? So that's where our sutra comes from, is this particular collection. Um, and this one is called the Lay Woman Gangotara. Um, a lot of things, I'm kind of, again, doing my kind of DJ thing here where I'm trying to mix these sutras together. So there's going to be a lot of play off of last week and the week before. All right? And so I want to actually start with an idea from the Vajra Sutra to put us in the right, right frame of mind. And then we'll look at the, this laywoman lay Gangotara. The idea that you really need to be familiar with or re-familiar with is from, it's from the very last chapter of the sutra, of the Vajra Pranyaparamita Sutra. This is what I read last week, by the way. Um, this is the, probably the most famous line from it. It's the little poem that's in the final chapter of it. And the Buddha tells Subhuti that um, he kind of summarizes the whole sutra in this little Dharma jewel, saying, all conditioned dharmas are like a dream, an illusion, a bubble, or a shadow like dew and like lightning, thus they should be perceived. That's the the big line from the Vajra Sutra here. I want to go over that really quickly just to bring us back on board in terms of kind of how we're thinking about these ideas. Um, And then we're going to see what the lay woman, Gangotara, has to say about all this. So what gets mentioned there is, is the Buddha says at the end, here it is, this is it. Look at the world this way. This is the right view, the samyadrishti, the right view of the world, is that you should see all conditioned, all samskrita dharma, all conditioned dharmas as like a dream, an illusion, a bubble, or a shadow. All right, so what, what is a samskrita dharma? This is a, a, a way, samskrita dharma is a way of putting something that we've been talking about every night that we've been here. And what we've been talking about is the stuff, this stuff in this world. All these things, these objects in the world. Not to mention all these things. Beings, sentient beings, human beings, what have you. So we've got stuff and beings and then, you know, ideas, right? Very subtle stuff. Because this stuff is like, you can kind of like hold this stuff, sort of, kind of, but... Ideas, they're a little, where are those at, you know? 
But indeed, what a dharma is in this situation is you name it, you name it, doesn't matter. A bowl, a table, a chair, a hair follicle, a light bulb, um, um, a greedy thought, uh, whatever, you name it. Whether it's an idea, a feeling, a sensation, an object, a phenomena, whatever it is, that's a dharma. That's a thing. So if you would like, you can just think of this word as a thing. A thing, right? I mean, a phenomena or something like that. But when we say a dharma is a thing, it's not, again, just a thing you can touch. It's any phenomena. So like even, again, just the thought of the color red. Not something red, but just the thought of the color red. Oh, that's a dharma. A little tricky to grab, but it is a dharma or a thing nonetheless. And what we've been talking about in our Sunday classes here is that all these phenomena are understood by their qualities or their appearance. Qualities being things like size, shape, color, and number, or if we're talking about tactility, we're talking about how things feel. Are they rough? Are they smooth? Are they this? Are they that? If we're talking about sound, we're talking about sound qualities, loud, quiet, soft, all of that. And so all of these things, whether it's a noise or a, a sight or a, a smell or whatever, what this is sort of saying is, is that all conditioned or conditional Samskrita, all Samskrita dharmas should be seen as being like a dream, an illusion, a bubble, or a shadow. So now that we know that dharmas are all the stuff, whether again it's an idea or a thing, and this is saying that Samskrita dharmas are like an illusion or a bubble. And when I say conditioned or conditional, you don't have to get too crazy here tonight. You really can just think of this idea of Everything being conditional in the sense of, again, is this a large bowl? Well, that depends, right? It would be conditional based on if there was a giant bowl here, well, then it's a small bowl. But if I had a teeny, tiny little bowl, it would be the big bowl. So is it big? Is it little? Well, that's conditional. It's dependent upon or conditional based on the other bulls, right? Um, am I speaking loudly now? Am I really? Was I re No, I was speaking really quietly before, right? So soft, loud is conditional. It's dependent. So the idea is, is that, and if you were here last week, you know we're talking about these ideas of lakshana, and this idea of these lakshana is, a, is the Sanskrit word for qualities of things. And the delusion or illusion in Buddhism is that we think these qualities are possessed by the object. That this little thing is green and square. That this is round and hollow. That these are qualities held by these things. And we just experience them. What we've been talking about the last few weeks is the way that Buddhism actually puts our experience of this world under the microscope and kind of sees it as that we are sort of kind of projecting these qualities onto these things and getting them back. It's a little more complicated than that, 
But the first movement here is to recognize that these qualities and these characteristics of these things are not held by them. Right? There's something a little trickier going on. But all of those qualities that are dependent on other things that are being projected, they're all conditioned or conditional what Buddhism calls samskrita dharmas. And everything is a conditioned dharma. Everything is samskrita dharma. There's only one thing that is a-samskrita dharma, unconditioned. And that's nirvana. And the laywoman Gangutara is actually going to tell us about nirvana as the unconditioned. All right? So the thing about it is, is like, okay, okay Buddha, so you're telling me that these qualities of these things are not held by the thing, they're arising in between, kind of being projected. And so the Buddha is saying that you, the way you should see this world is, is that all conditioned things should be seen as being like a dream or an illusion or a mirage, right? a phantom, not it, like, a, like you're in a dream and it's a dream bowl, it's a phantasm bowl. That's how the world should be seen, all right? Okay. I have a question. So the sutra, um, apparently, I mean, I'm excited to hear the sutra, but if there, you know, he talks about duality, right? Um, so verses. And in the parts of the Diamond Sutra, he actually talks, or the sutra talks, actually about non-duality. They say, like, samsara is no mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. So I sometimes am a little bit lost of, you know, like a lot of teachings are based on there is this duality or seemingly duality, and then there are these teachings that suppose, you know, there is no separation. Mm-hmm. So. Well, just really quickly, and I, again, this whole sutra tonight is about all these ideas, so, but you could, if you would like, Sure, you could say this is talking about the dualistic world. Everything dualistic. Subject-object relationship. Boom. So that's, you're already in the world of dualism if you're in the Samskrita Dharma world. It's tempting. It's tempting to say, ah, then the unconditioned is the non-dual. But this is where I'm really always trying to really, you know, get across what, you know, how far Buddhism is being past non-duality. Because this concept of non-dual is totally dualistic. That's what Buddhism is saying, is that you will never, ever get out of the dualistic trap. As long as you are a subject-object situation. Meaning, oh look, words on a thing. So you, non-duality is absolutely beyond conceptualization. Absolutely beyond grasp. Absolutely beyond all of that. Logically, it's nice to put this as, oh, you mean that's non-dual. And then the logical mind is very satisfied at having a little box that is the non-dual. But that's not non-duality by a long shot, if you know what I mean. And, but Buddhism is wrestling with this very concept that while the non-dual is nice to think about, anytime you're thinking or in discursive, discursive thought or anything, you're going to be trapped in subject object. You're, you're over here. You're always over here, actually, is the, is the idea. But let's, let's get to the sutra. Did you have a question before we do the sutra? Yeah. Um, so, 
It's just that I build bold recognizers. It's my job. Uh, for real. Okay. <laughs> but you don't, though. Please stop saying this. You don't. You program computers to recognize certain things. That's very different. It's a statistical process, so it looks at stuff. But anyway, yeah, yeah. bottom line is that uh, what the robots call the bowl is, is just the concept of bowl is just a lakshana in itself. So whether the, 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 the robot does that, it says, yeah, that's a bowl. And I call something else a bowl. And it's, it's all boiling down to it's a lakshana anyway, right? There's an, there's an arbitrariness. There's no, like, it comes back to what you're, exactly to what you were saying. <laughs> the, the, the bowl is not, like, like, from the robot perspective, from your perspective, it's a different lakshana anyway in the first place, uh, you know? And saying different, different yeah, yeah, is yeah. also lakshana. <laughs> Yeah, again, this idea, though, I, I don't want to do, I'll do, I'll give it one more minute. <laughs> but again, the, the idea here is, is that, you know, I, you know, I don't go down too many hypothetical roads to begin with. I, I think hypotheticals are totally ridiculous because it, hypotheticals, you can make hypotheticals do anything you want them to do. If you know what I mean? So it's like, and then as soon as you get in a trap, it's like, well, no, well, hypothetically, then that didn't happen. And it's like, okay, what are we talking about? So hypotheticals for me are always a little tricky. But if we're talking about programming some sort of machine to identify Lakshana, you're not programming a machine to identify bowls. You're identifying Lakshana of certain characteristics. And so, again, if the machine were to come along and say, oh, look, a bowl, and then not a bowl, not a bowl, and again, I were to get my torch out and I were to flatten this thing out, it would all of a sudden say, not a bowl. It would not recognize it. But it's not thinking, A, A, it's not thinking, and B, it's not talking about bowls. It's, it, you have programmed it to identify a certain lakshana of hollowness, and if it doesn't have that lakshana anymore, it won't fall into the category of that. That's how we think. Yes, that's what we're talking about. That's what Buddhism's talking about. That's how we think. Yeah, so well, great, but where are we? We're no further along than they were two seconds ago, if you know what I mean. But we could be. We could be further along. <laughs> okay. So again, this is a short one, but you kind of need to do, be, either be reminded of all of that or have heard it all initially. Um, one of wild idea. If you've been here and you heard the Vajra Sutra and you heard the Buddha talk about the Ganges River and all the Ganges rivers, what does it mean that this lay woman, she's an upasaki, so there's upasakas, lay men, and upasaki, lay women, so this lay woman, whose name is Tara, Tara means like, not, it does mean above, but it means sort of like superior to. So in that sense of above, it can literally be above, but it gives the sense of like a sense of superior to the Ganges. This woman is the Ganges River Tara, something like that. I don't know. There seems to be something going on with, um, well, of course, you know that in India, the Ganges River is worshipped as a god. So there's Gange or Ganga worship going on in India. That Ganga worship or that Ganges River worship then trickles into our Vajra Sutra here by this amazing metaphor of taking all the sand and having as many Ganges rivers as there are grains of sand in the Ganges River. It's a lot of Ganges rivers, right? And so this kind of a mystical power of the Ganges River is sort of 
I think is in this woman, in this woman's being, that she's this Gangotara. All right, so maybe it's just the woman and her parents, they lived by the Ganges River and her parents named her Gangotara. Or maybe this is one of those Buddhist things where they're speaking so layered and poetic that somehow the Buddha is having a discourse with the Ganges River itself. Just be open to that that's what's, what's maybe going on in here, right? Thus have I heard. Once the Buddha was dwelling in the garden of Anathapindika in the Jetagvana near Shravasti, and at that time a lay woman named Gangotara came from her dwelling in Shravasti to see the Buddha. She prostrated herself with her head at the Buddha's feet, withdrew to one side, and sat down. The world-honored one, the Buddha, asked Gangotara, where do you come from? The lay woman asked the Buddha, world-honored one, if someone were to ask a magically produced being where they came from, how should that question be answered? The world-honored one told her, a magically produced being neither comes nor goes, neither is born nor perishes. How can one speak of a place from which it comes? Then the laywoman asked, Is it not true that all things are illusory, like magic? The Buddha said, Yes, indeed, what you say is true. Gangutara asked, If all things are illusory, like magic, why did you ask me where I came from? The world honored one told her, A magically produced being does not go to the miserable planes of existence, nor to heaven, nor does she attain nirvana. Gangutara, is that also true of you? The laywoman replied, As I see it, if my own body were different from a magically produced one, then I could speak of going to the good or miserable planes of existence or of attaining nirvana. But I see no difference, though, between my body and a magically produced one. So how can I speak of going to the good or miserable planes or of attaining nirvana? Furthermore, world honor one, nirvana's very nature is such that it is not reborn in the good or miserable planes, nor does it experience pari-nirvana. I perceive that the same is true of my own nature. The Buddha asked, do you not seek the state of nirvana? Gangotara asked in return, if this question were put to one who had never come into being, how should it be answered? The Buddha replied, that which has never come into being is nirvana itself. Gangotara asked, are not all things identical with nirvana? The Buddha replied, so they are, so they are. World honor one, if all things are identical with nirvana, why did you ask me? Do you not seek the state of nirvana? Furthermore, world honor one, if a magically produced being asked another magically produced being, do you not seek the state of nirvana? What would the answer be? The world honor one told her, a magically produced being has no mental attachments and thus seeks nothing. Gangotara inquired, does the Tathagata's very question stem from some mental attachment? 
The world on one told her. I raise the question because there are in this assembly good men and good women who can be brought to maturity. I am free of mental attachments. Why? Because the Tathagatan knows that even the names of things are inapprehensible, let alone the things themselves or those who seek nirvana. Gangutara said, if so, why all the accumulation of good roots for the attainment of enlightenment? The Buddha replied, neither bodhisattvas nor their good roots can be apprehended because in the bodhisattvas' minds there is no discriminative thought as to whether they are accumulating good roots or not. Gangutara asked, what do you mean by no discriminative thought? And the world honored one answered, the absence of discriminative thought cannot be understood or grasped by means of thinking. Why? Because in the state of no discriminative thought, even the mind itself is inapprehensible, let alone the mental functions. This state in which the mind is inapprehensible is called inconceivable. It cannot be grasped or realized. It is neither pure nor impure. Why so? Because as the Tathagata always teaches, all things are as empty and unimpeded as empty space. All right, let's stop there and talk a little bit. And then I'll finish it. Questions? Ideas? Exactly what you mentioned before about it. You know, it's, I mean, he exactly he points to the misunderstanding, a little bit at least, of one aspect of, of duality, right? And the last answer he gave is like, well, you are asking from a mind who is in itself dual or thinking mm-hmm. in a way, right? Mm-hmm. So it goes back to what you said before. Yep, and again, I mean, this, I, the language in here where it's talking about beyond pure and impure, that, yeah, that's the non-dual realm and that they're trying to talk about, they're trying to point at using this language and using this stuff, but always remember that Buddhist saying about not mistaking the finger pointing at the moon for the moon. The fingers are pointing at non-duality. The fingers are not non-duality. When the finger says beyond pure and impure, that's not non-duality, but it's pointing at it, if you know what I mean. And that's what the, the sutras are always talking about, is like, do not, if, do not mistake the dualistic world for it in that way. Yeah. What, can you speak a little bit on this thing about magically produced? Yes. Being, I mean, that's a very yeah, because we're going to bring it back to your magically produced robot, going after magically reduced bowls and all of that. So, so from the top, right? This is an amazing dialogue, and it just keeps getting crazier, by the way, in terms of this discourse with the lay woman. And also, by the way, I want you to know that this kind of, yeah, okay, A, yeah, maybe this is a historical moment where, again, some people who named their daughter Gangutara because they were totally crazy about the Ganges River, that that's a historical figure, and she talked to the historical Buddha, and this is a record of that dialogue. Maybe. <laughs> But if it's acting more allegorical, poetic, and all of that, right, it's fascinating that it's a lay woman that is actually, in a way, schooling the Buddha. Now, the Buddha's like, I I know that. I'm just doing this for the benefit of the people in the audience, right? That's his kind of answer. Obviously, I know about all this. But still, if you've been following the last number of sutras and seeing how 
whether it's Ananda, Subhuti, Shariputra, who the Buddha is discoursing with is of the utmost importance. All right? These are truly like, you know, I mean, in my opinion, these are way wilder than the Platonic dialogues. Like that format of the Platonic dialogue is, I think, an amazing way of dispensing information. I think this is way crazier, way crazier in that way. Because, because it's acting in this poetic level too, where the interlocutors, the questioners, become, start to represent things. So it's not just about what's coming out of their mouth. It's that a lay woman is asking the Buddha this. Or better yet, the lay woman is telling the Buddha this, Right? And so the first question, she comes, Gangatara comes, sits down, and he says, where do you come from? And the lay woman, Gangatara, says, world on a one. If someone were to ask a magically produced being where he came from, how should the question be answered, right? And he says, a magically produced being neither comes nor goes, neither is born nor perishes. How can one speak of a place from which he comes? All right. There's a few different ways that we could talk about this. All right. So we're going to try, we'll eventually tie it back. But I want to use an example. There's all these examples that Buddhists use that are a little outdated. So I'm going to try to revamp or modernize one in a certain way. But what you could think of in terms of this question of uh, what would you say to a magically produced being? Where, where do they come from, right? Well, imagine either, you know, um, I mean, you could really just imagine it as having a, a hallucination, just for now. Just have a hallucination. All of a sudden, uh, I don't know, maybe you took something, somebody slipped you something. I don't know. But you're, all of a sudden, you're having a hallucination. All of a sudden, whoa, somebody walks in the door. And it's like, whoa, where do they come from? Right? Does a hallucination of a person where you're like, well, where did you come from? Did they come from down the block, down the street? Did they come from South Bay? No, they're, they're a hallucination. Right? They don't come from anywhere. They, don't, they, don't, they were not born anywhere. They don't go anywhere. Right? That's what they're talking about. And the point of, or the tie-in with the Vajra Sutra in this is that, let's say I'm hallucinating and there's like a person here. And I'm like, oh, where did you come from? Wow. This sutra in Buddhism is saying that I should regard all beings as being exactly like that. Like a hallucination not having come from anywhere and not going anywhere, having originated from the exact same place as a hallucinatory person. All right? I'll give you another example, too, to think about, which is, and this is, um, I'll probably come back to this one a few times, um, where in going back to the Vajra Sutra, where he says all conditioned dharmas are like a dream. So think of it that way, right? Funny thing about dreams, right? Unless you're having a lucid dream, Funny thing about dreams is that they, they seem real when you're having them, right? That's the funny thing about them. So imagine that you're having a dream, but you kind of forgot you're dreaming. So it's one of those dreams that seems just like it's just happening, right? And let's say you meet somebody and you really hit it off in your dream. Where did that person come from? Where were they born? Does it make any sense to ask that question? They're not that kind of being, right? They are a, a, a dream being or the hallucination being. Those beings don't come from wombs, semen and eggs, uh, you know, hospitals and maternity wards. No, dream beings and hallucinatory beings 
they don't come from anywhere, they don't go anywhere. If you want to get technical, you start to think, oh, they're mind-made or mind-created. Okay, fine, you hold on to that for a second. But the idea is, is that, that the view of a hallucination that you might be tricked by it, so tricked by it that you start asking it questions, so tricked by it that you're curious, where were you born, where were you raised? Again, Gangutara and the Buddha is saying that we should have the same disposition towards all beings, that they are all like hallucinatory dream beings that come from nowhere and go from nowhere. By the way, this is exactly tying into the Vajra Sutra of saying no self, individual, sentient being, or lifespan. So if you were here last week, the constant refrain that the Bodhisattva has no conception, doesn't hold on to the idea of selves as individuals, as sentient beings with lifespans. This is saying the same thing. Regard all beings as like, like hallucinations in that way. If someone were to ask a magically produced being where they came from, how should the question be answered? That's Gangotada's question. The world other one told Gangotada, a magically produced being neither comes nor goes, neither is born nor dies. How can one speak of a place from which it comes? So then the laywoman asks, is it not true that all things are illusory, like magic, like the Vajra Sutra says? That's what she's saying. I read the Vajra Sutra. Isn't it true that all things are illusory, like magic? The Buddha said, yes, indeed, what you say is true. Gangotara asks, if all things are illusory, like magic, why'd you ask me where I came from? And the world honor one told her, a magically produced being does not go to the miserable planes of existence, nor to heaven. Nor does he attain nirvana. Gangutara, is that also true of you? So follow me here too, because if this is your first introduction to these ideas, yes, I just said that Buddhism says that all beings are like, like hallucinatory dream beings. So that all of a sudden sort of should raise a moral red flag of like, whoa, wait, wait, right? But then this is saying, yeah, a magically produced being, which I regard my body as. Gangotara is saying, I regard your body as a magically produced being. I regard my own body as a magically produced being. Right? And he says, a magically produced being does not go into the miserable planes of existence, nor to heaven, nor does it attain nirvana. Gangotara, is that also true of you? And the laywoman Gangotara replied, as I see it, if my own body were different from a magically produced one, then I could talk about going to the good or miserable planes of existence or attaining nirvana. But I see no difference, though, between my body and a magically produced one. So how can I speak of going to the good or miserable planes or of attaining nirvana? This is a, actually a very well-written well sentence of, of an idea I'm always trying to get across, which is, um, I always put it uh, that um, karma's only a problem for people that believe in it. And what I mean by that is, is it's a way of saying that if you're attached to this body, then you, you, you're going to get the karma that comes along with it. The laywoman says here that if my own body were different from a magically produced one, meaning that if, if, if I thought, oh, there's a hallucinatory being and there's a dream being and I'm a real being, so if, as I see it, if my own body were different from a magically produced one, then I could talk about going to good and miserable planes of existence or of attaining nirvana. 
If I believe this body is real and not magically produced in the phantasm and all of that, then I have been reborn as a human. I might be reborn as a dog. I might be reborn and up in heaven, depending on what a good job I'm doing here. But the idea is, and I'm, and I'm striving for nirvana. So as long as I'm in a body, I'm in the, the planes of existence, going around in samsara and trying to get out of it. Right? So, if my own body were different from a magical produced one, then I could speak of going to the good or miserable planes of existence or of attaining nirvana. But I see no difference, though, between my body and a magically produced one. So how can I, how can I speak of going to the good or miserable planes of existence or of attaining nirvana? Meaning, for Gangutara, she's not in samsara. She's not in a miserable plane of existence or a heavenly plane of existence or achieving nirvana or not achieving nirvana because she thinks she has a magically produced body. Well, I'm going, we're going to go further with this. Any questions though? Any ideas? But she doesn't give a fuck. I mean... Well, I mean, sort of yeah, sort of no. This is where... Yeah, yeah. I dare she talks to the Buddha that way. Too. I, I am. But, but she does just... This is her just showing up out of thin air in the Buddha world and talking this way and being awesome. Yeah, and there's a, there's... There's a part at the end of this. Yeah, I'm almost there. So let's let's. No, 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 no. No, no, no. Okay. So I'm going to go back to where I left off. So now Gangotara inquires. So if all things are like empty space, why does the world honor one speak of form, sensations? Conditioning and consciousness, or the five skandhas. Why does the world on one speak of form, sensations, perception, conditioning, and consciousness? Why does he speak of the 18 elements, the 12 entrances, the 12 links of dependent origination, the defiled and the undefiled, the pure and the impure, samsara and nirvana? Right? So that's, that's Gangutara's question. So if everything is like empty space, what's with all this talk of samsara and nirvana and this and that and that, right? The Buddha told Gangutara, when I speak of a self, for example, although I express the concept by a word, actually the, the nature of a self is inapprehensible. I speak of form, but in reality, the nature of form is also inapprehensible. And so it is with the other skandhas and the other dharmas all the way up to nirvana. Just as we cannot find water in mirages, so we cannot find a nature in form. And so it is with the others all the way up to nirvana. Gangutara, only a person who cultivates pure conduct in accordance with the Dharma, perceiving that nothing can be apprehended, only that person deserves to be called a real cultivator of pure conduct. Since the arrogant say that they have apprehended something, they cannot be said to be firmly established in genuine pure conduct. Such arrogant people will be terrified and doubtful when they hear this profound dharma. They will be unable to liberate themselves from birth, old age, sickness, and death, worry, sorrow, suffering, and distress. Gangutara, after my final nirvana, there will be some people able to spread this profound dharma, which can stop the rounds of samsara. However, some fools, because of their evil views, will hate those Dharma masters and will contrive to harm them. Such fools will fall to the hells for that. 
Gangutara, Gangutara asked, you, so this is Gangutara. Gangutara asked, you speak of this profound dharma, which can stop the rounds of samsara. What do you mean by stop the rounds of samsara? The world on one replied, to stop the rounds of samsara is to penetrate reality, the realm of the inconceivable. Such a dharma cannot be damaged or destroyed. Hence, it is called the dharma that can stop the rounds of samsara. Then, the world-honored one smiled graciously and emitted from his forehead blue, yellow, red, white, and crystalline lights. The lights illuminated all the numerous lands, reaching as high as the Brahma heaven, then returned and entered the top of the Buddha's head. Seeing this, the venerable Ananda thought to himself, The Tathagata, the worthy one, the supremely enlightened one, does not smile without a reason. He rose from his seat, uncovered his right shoulder, knelt on his right knee, and joined his palms together toward the Buddha and inquired, saying, Why did the Buddha smile? The Buddha replied, I recall that in the past a thousand Tathagatas also taught this Dharma here. And in each of those assemblies was also a lay woman named Gangutara. And after hearing this Dharma preached, the lay woman and all the assembly left the household life. And in time, they all entered Nirvana. And then ultimately, the final Nirvana. Ananda asked the Buddha, what name should be given to this sutra and how should we accept it and hold it? The Buddha said, this sutra is, is called Flawless Purity. And you should accept it and hold it by that name. During the preaching of this sutra, 700 monks and 400 nuns were liberated from defilements forever and their minds were set free. At that time, the gods of the realm of desire magically produced various kinds of wonderful celestial flowers and scattered them upon the Buddha, saying, Rare indeed is this lay woman who can converse fearlessly with the Tathagata on equal terms. She must have served and made offerings to countless Buddhas, and planted good roots of every kind in their presence. After the Buddha had finished speaking the sutra, the lay, the lay woman Gangutara and all the gods, the humans, Asuras, Gandharavas, and so forth were jubilant over the Buddha's teachings. They accepted it with faith and began to follow it with great veneration. All right. Questions? Yeah. You know what kind of comes to mind while you're reading this is um, he, she, she kind of um, answers always, why, ask you, why are you asking this question about duality when ultimately you know, you're going to be only non-duality as So I'm thinking about the Four Noble Truths, you know, because the Four Noble Truths doesn't start with there is no suffering, there is freedom. It starts with the duality with, um, with there is suffering. Mm-hmm. Right, so I think it's interesting that in, in, in a lot of mantras, like for example, the Guru, Guru Yoga, it starts with um, 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 kind of um, peace, calm my mind, and, and you know, it's like it's very dual, and, and at the very end, it dissolves and there is no duality. So I think there's this recognition in the Four Noble Truths that there is suffering, right? without neglecting the duality. So, hmm. 
Yeah, I, I think for me it's just coming up, like, you know, there is this reason, obviously there is this reason of having the experience of a so-called non-dual state. Mm -hmm. So in order, okay, it sums up with my statement, in order to know what non-suffering is, there has to be suffering. Yeah, so that's what is coming up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And there's, there's statements very similar to that in Buddhism, that idea of like, there's something about the suffering that, yeah. And, and in regards to what you started, how you started that, you know, Buddhism is always starting from the dualistic place, which is where we start. If we were not, if we were Buddhas or we were non-dual beings, there would be either a totally different way to start or there would never be a starting in that way. But the, yeah, the, the first noble truth of the suffering is like, that's this statement of, of where we all start. And, and, and again, with, with, for me with Buddhism is that if, that if that noble truth doesn't ring true to you, that, hey, then that's maybe Dharma's not for you or whatever. If, you, if that's not, you know, if you think life's totally hunky-dory all the time and you get everything you want all the time and you're always satisfied all the time, sweet, you know? But for most of us, it's not like that. Most of us, it's suffering to a certain degree. So, yeah, it starts with the dualistic position we're in and then, again, is trying to somehow move us beyond that. But, again, I want to... I want to kind of get back to this dualistic, non-dualistic idea because this is, it's different than that. Yeah. What is the meaning of uh, when it kind of starts to explode and then there's all these Gangutaras uh, in the mm. past and mm -hmm. all of that? What's the meaning of, why does it go there? Yeah. I don't know. I mean, I have my book understanding of that. Um, yeah, it's, it's interesting, right? Because he says that basically... Um, you know, what was it about how wherever there is this uh, sutra, there's a Gangotara there, right? Um, I recall that in, in the past, a thousand Tathagatas also taught this Dharma here. And each of those assemblies was also led by a laywoman named Gangotara, right? And after hearing this Dharma preached, the laywoman, all the assembly, they were, all right. So yeah, she's, in, she's always there, right? My understanding of how these uh, sutras, all the Mahayana sutras work, is that Gangotara was here tonight. She's here tonight. We're talking about her. The words are coming out. And that's Gangotara. And wherever this Dharma is taught, Gangotara is always going to be there. This is potentially 2,000 years after the Buddha said this or somebody said this and it got written down. Guess what? This sutra is being preached and Gangotara is right here. Leading the way, isn't she? And isn't and hasn't that Gongutara not been born? Will not perish? Has come from nowhere? Goes nowhere? Is Tathagata is present? Right? That's what I think they're talking about. And I think little s s uh, sentences like that are like, like yes, that's what we're talking about. And, and you know, I always say that about the Tathagata. What's the Tathagata? The Tathagata is not two thousand year old Buddha. The Tagatag is when we're saying the Dharma. When the Dharma's coming out, and I'm, I'm never, you know, I'm never saying I'm the Buddha, I'm the Tathagata, but I get to be the, the, the voice, I get to be the vehicle in that sense, if you know what I mean. I'm kind of being a little mystical here, but the idea being that 
you can see these words as the records of 2,000 years old events, or you can see them as, as living events, like right now. We just read the Gangotara Sutra. So again, she was present in the room in that sense. And again, I think that's what they're talking about in terms of that Gangotara doesn't come from anywhere, doesn't go anywhere. Magic, magically produced. That's magic. Yeah, and that's also what I would like to say what I think about what I think about Buddhism, what they're doing is, is what I'm trying to do here is magic. It's not hocus-pocus, hallucinatory magic. It's something more subtle than that, um, what they call the sad-dharma, the subtle dharma. That is magic, I think. Anything else? Because I a couple ideas. I wanna... So I want to talk about this. Um, um, so the Buddha asks our Gangotara, do you not seek the state of nirvana? And Gautama asked in return, if this question were put to one who had never come into being, how should it be answered? In the, in the, you know, the Zen tradition, there's a koan that says it's like a, what, uh, something about like, what, what did you look like or what was your face like before you were born? Something to that effect. And it's to push you to try to like conceive of the not you like to conceive of a time when you didn't, when you weren't. And this is sort of saying about this idea, right, of um, if this question were put to, to somebody who had never come into being, this is like, you know, um, I think Suzanne mentioned the tree falling in the woods last week about that. This is kind of like the tree falling in the woods, but even crazier, because it's like if a tree never existed and it fell, would it make a noise? It's like, well, I don't know what. So, I mean, that's kind of what they're talking about. I mean, if this question, so do you seek to the state of nirvana? So if that same question were put to one who had never come into being, how should it be answered? And the Buddha replies, that which has never come into being is nirvana itself. That is a wonderful statement. <laughs> For those of you wondering about what nirvana is or might be and what it talks about in terms of asam, when I said the only asam skritta dharma, the only unconditioned dharma is nirvana, and you're like, well, what is that? Well, think about a, a being that never came into existence. That's nirvana. Because nirvana never comes into existence, is never cut up, is never conditioned, is never conditional. This is conditional. This is cut up. This is samsara because it's cut up. This is samsara because it's dualistic. This is samsara because it's conditioned and conditional. The reason, or not the reason, but the idea between samsara and nirvana being the same is that the idea is, is that this is nirvana if you'd stop cutting it up, <laughs> if you'd stop doing that. That's the idea here. It's, so there's, nirvana is not a place or anything like that. It's this when you stop, when you stop. First, you know, we stop that, the clinging attachment. But nirvana gives birth to, to It's so tricky. And this is like the craziest thing. And there's so many sutras on this, which is like, well, but what is exactly the relationship between these? What is the membrane between these two? What is the passage between them? I'm telling you, there's so, there's so many sutras that deal with this idea of the passage from one to the other. But it's, it's um, you know, I've, I've 
the example I give is from a, a, a it's not really a sutra, it's actually a kind of a commentary called The Awakening of Faith. And in The Awakening of Faith, there's a famous story about a, a guy who's lost in the woods, and it's, there's no moon out, he doesn't have a compass, he doesn't know north, south, east, or west. So he's just he's totally lost. The story goes that the second the man doesn't care where he's going, he's no longer lost. It's just that easy, right? The second he doesn't care where he's going, he's no longer lost, right? Has anything changed in terms of nirvana? If you think of samsara as being lost, samsara is like, like which way is which? I'm nervous, I'm scared, I don't know what's going on. That's called being lost. As soon as I don't care, that's nirvana. Huh, I don't care where I'm going. Wow, that's nirvana. Oh, so the whole thing the whole time was just me being worried about where I was going? It was me the whole time? That's what this is saying. This is what dharma is. Questions? Ideas? <laughs> so, so for, I was reading about Shaitanism and, you know, like, which talks a lot about, like, non-duality and, and the interplay, like, Shakti coming out of Shiva and mm-hmm. back and sure. all that. How is that different, uh, or what's the, you know, what's the Buddhist twist that is different than just, you know, uh, Hinduism or? Um, you know, I really, I mean, it's that's a, that's huge, that's huge, huge, huge. Um, you know, any kind of Hindu philosophy that's dealing with these dualisms, and then so like Shiva Shakti is this male-female dualism that gets split up, but then they come together, and there's a sense of Union, a sense of non-duality or something like that. There's a way in which a lot, I mean, it's too complicated. I cannot fully describe non-duality in that whole world of what it means. But I I do want to stress kind of how Buddhism is a a little different. Because it is, it's just, it's it's kind of very different in that way. let me go back to the robot, uh, Lakshana robot. No, no, no. I think it actually might be helpful in terms of a subtle, a subtle distinction going on here. So when you, just, when you describe to me your robot that is going around discerning, discriminating based on ideas or program, and I say, yeah, that's what we're doing. <laughs> that's exactly what we're doing. And, and your robot doesn't prove to me anymore that the lakshana are in the thing when it's a robot doing it or you doing it. There's, there's no, um, uh, nothing gets proven in that. And so I'll, uh, again, I want to explain or give you an example of why with the hope of pushing us f- further towards what kind of what the sutra is talking about. So this, again, going back to all conditioned dharmas are like a dream. So this is the sutra that sort of was one of the first to say this kind of profound idea that all things, all phenomena, everything that's happened to you, everything that's happening to you is like a dream of the same nature as a dream. All right. And what that means is, is that if you think about it, if you think about uh, either a very memorable dream that you've had, you know, where you can really see it or a dream you had last night or whatever, but imagine that you that, imagine that dream. Right? You're, you're seeing things, you're hearing things, you're seeing and hearing things that you think are other than you, 
right? Because the perception in the dream is one of, of not being the thing. And so I, could, I can extend and grab it or not because I'm not it, right? That's the illusion in the dream, right? Of a duality, yeah? That it's not me. So, oh, and so I must grab it. And so what I want you to think about is that in that dream, again, you're seeing things, you're hearing things, you're you know, potentially smelling things. Like you're having a dream, mom's cooking up mom's spaghetti, and you're like, oh, I can smell it now. I can see mom in the kitchen. I can smell it. I can taste it, the whole thing, right? So those are all lakshana. Those are all lakshana. The smell of mom's spaghetti in the dream, what she looked like in the kitchen, her voice, those are all lakshana. But lakshana of what, again, exactly? You see what I'm saying? Because that mom in the kitchen, that's a, remember, we're in a dream. In a dream. So what lakshana are those? Are, the, are they, you see what I'm saying? What's going on in a dream lakshanically? The same thing is going on as going on here. And this is what I mean by, the, by your example. Is that when we're in a dream, it seems really very real, right? Yet, our eyes are closed. We're not using these eyeballs to see things. We're not using these ears to hear things. We're not using this nose to smell things. We're not using this tongue to taste things, right? But in the dream, it sure seems that way, right? It sure seems like five differentiated experiences, meaning what I'm seeing from what I'm hearing, from what I'm smelling, from what I'm tasting, from what I'm feeling, right? It sure seems like what I'm getting at is, is that this, you think this is happening via five different senses coming together in your brain, right, or something to produce this experience. And then you think the lakshana are of that out there. Buddhism is saying that this is exactly like the, a dream, the exact same nature of a, as a dream. This bowl, this one right here, is made out of the exact same stuff as the one you had in your dream. This one has a little extra lakshana, which is the lakshana of real. That's a, it's, a, it's a real tricky lakshana. The, the paint, the, the brush stroke of real. Right? You see what I'm saying? But I want you to understand how that lakshana of you're a real bull, right? You're not a dream bull. You're real, right? That's a lakshana. Just like size, shape, color, number. That it looks like a real bull. No, yeah, yeah. It, because since we can't in any way prove that this is not a dream, there's right. no one in the room that can prove that, then that bowl can no more be in that it, it doesn't possess its boldness any more than the dream bowl does. It's just, it's the stuff that's put onto it. They're no different. Mm-hmm. They're the same thing. They're the same and they're made of the same stuff. Yeah. And is I, that what you're saying? Yes. Okay. Yeah. It's a a little, I mean, it gets complex because this is kind of a collective dream and our nighttime dreams are like, Buddhism, it's like they're little personal night like dreams and this is collective dream, but it doesn't, the point is the same though, that this is made of the same stuff as a dream bowl. 
But again, it just has that extra lakshan or that extra quality of appearing to be real in that way. Well, I actually sort of take it to go in the other direction. I've come to think of dreams as our opportunity to spend time every night in an alternative universe. And so... Sure. So it's not so much that this reality isn't quite real. You know, my perception is that maybe dreams are just as real. And accordingly, we should treat everyone we meet in dreams just as courteously as we treat people in, in, in this realm. Absolutely. Absolutely. From a Buddhist point of view, absolutely. Because, I mean, really from a Buddhist point of view, and I've shared this with a few people, from a Buddhist point of view, if a mosquito lands there and you're like, die, motherfucker, <laughs> it's as bad as killing somebody. Because in here, you wanted death. You were like, go, like, and there's a way from a Buddhist point of view that the, the receiver, that's, you know, karma they will get calculated certain ways depending on that. But really that, that heart that wanted to kill that's what Buddhism's interested in, in in a certain way. And so, yeah, if you're in a dream, that real or not real, I agree with you, David, that the idea is that the practice should remain in that sense. But I would, uh, based on something that came up with Suzanne's question, I want to, again, take us back to that dream world. And I, again, I want you to think about how that dream appears dualistic in terms of in the dream, you feel like you're you and the things are the things. Even though... In a dream, it's all your mind, right? It's all your stuff, all your dream bowls and dream pillows and all of that, right? But why is it that in a dream, it still appears not you? And if you're, if you're not lucid and you are tricked by the dream, you will go chasing after the thing that it is in your mind, right? You're having a dream about something you like, and then you spend the dream chasing after it, even though you're the dreamer of it. But what's funny about that is that because you don't know it's a dream, it's subject-object dualistic, right? But I've shared this with, uh, on a number of occasions regarding lucid dreams and regarding dream world and stuff. But I had this really wild lucid dream once. I've shared with people where I was on a, on a tile roof, these big ceramic uh, Spanish mission-style roof with these big um, you know, terracotta tiles. And in the dream, I was on the roof and I became lucid, lucidly aware that I was dreaming. Something happened in the dream and I was like, oh, wow, this is a dream. That's really wild. And I was doing a lot of lucid dream work, kind of dream, what they call dream yoga, where you kind of actually use that space to practice. And so I did a seated meditation on the roof and I was kind of, you know, trying to meditate on this like, oh, this is a dream. That's really weird. And then in the dream, I did something that's to this day, it changed my life, which is I picked up one of those tiles and I remember feeling it and being like, man, this is crazy. I remember thinking it feels like it, sh it should feel and it, it has weight. And then the thing happened. I dropped it and I watched it fall and shatter. And I was like, in the dream, I went, oh, my mind preserves physics. It did what it should have done under gravity. Do you see what I'm saying? My mind, samskrita, talk about samskrita, samskara, my mind carried over the physics of this world, right? And then, and then forced this phenomena that I dreamed, forced it to obey and look like it should, right? And as soon as that happened, I was like, oh my God, then I, 
then, oh, you're going to tell me this is, this is not a dream because that fell? That, you can't prove to me anymore because I know now that my mind can create physics. My mind can create worlds. That was another lucid dream I had where I was overlooking a whole city and tr- with trains and all this stuff. And I'm like, wow, my mind can make a whole city. All of our minds can make a whole city. Our minds go crazy every night. They're so powerful, right? But what all of that lucid practice taught me is how it's entirely possible for my mind to be doing the exact same thing here, which is having a dualistic experience when it could be just one mind, right? Because that's what I'm saying about a dream, is that it's just your mind, but the, the perception is that it's the same me and it thing. Just like the bowl drops, it shatters. Oh, look, a residual subject-object relationship. Do you see what I'm saying? So you use that dream space to realize, oh, my mind creates dualistic experiences. My mind creates physics. My mind creates continuity. If you understand what I'm saying, continuity being like I put stuff in the closet, shut the door. Open it back up and, oh, my God, it's exactly the same place. It's all stayed exactly where it was supposed to. And one, one argument would be like, there, that proves physical reality because like your mind would mess up, right? Your mind would move stuff around or something. Not necessarily is the idea. If you're following what I mean, like, so again, anything that you could throw at me here and say, this isn't a dream because, you know, th- throw it. You ain't got nothing is the idea. Yeah, no. I'm going back to something you said earlier along the same lines. <clears throat> And I think about the yoga, yoga karma, mm-hmm. that we, our response to the dream, our response to this, rea- to, to what we call reality. I uh, unfortunately uh, was involved in the death of four little animals on my trip in Arizona, and every time it was this starving thing of like, well, I couldn't help it, you know, stupid gopher. Yep, yep. Uh, but at the same time, my choice to then at that point remember meta and say well this is this this is fine when you come back you'll be something else and just have this presence to not let just just let that be mm-hmm. making a choice to say then I give meta to this thing whatever but I don't that's another topic we've talked about that but yeah. you understand that mm-hmm. my response to this re- this dream is, is what I'm in charge that I can change rather than the dream of me believing that this dream is constantly changing me Mm-hmm. I have there. There is a way of being in this dream that is liberating. Well, yeah, and I've I've said this before. Um, you know this this word um, Buddha, and the root of it is Bodhi, and Bodhi means um, well. Actually, I've said this before. The root of both these words is Bud. And the English word bud is, the English word bud comes from bud, the root of both these words. And it means to awaken, but like a flower awakens. That's the operating metaphor. And it's why Buddhas are usually on flowers. There's this relationship between the awakening or opening of a flower and the awakening of the human um, sort of later in life. And so Buddha means awake one. Bodhi is Awakeness. This is usually translated as enlightenment, but in this case, it's it, the operating metaphor is about awakening. And 
if, if you haven't heard this, it's worth saying, which is that, so this is the dream metaphor I've been using, right? So the idea is, is that, again, normally when we're in a dream, we think it's real until we wake up and we go, oh, that was a dream, right? We can look back and be like, oh, of course it was a dream, right? There would never be that or that. But when it's happening, for some reason, walls are melting or whatever, and it's just kind of normal somehow, right? It's really kind of weird. But the idea is, is that in that dream that we don't know is a dream, where we mistake it for real and subject-object, and there's stuff I want and all of that, an example that I use is, is that if you don't know it's a dream, and let's say someone's chasing you, and you're scared, and you're like, oh, oh my God, and you're like, oh, they're getting closer. Now, what's, of course, funny about a dream like that is that you're chasing yourself, right? Because you don't know it's a dream, and so you don't know that that's you. <laughs> and so you're like, oh, my God, right? So when you don't know what's going on, when you don't know it's a dream, you suffer from it, right? But if you all of a sudden became lucid in that dream, lucidly aware that you were dreaming, right? All of a sudden the walls started melting, you're like, Walls don't melt. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. At that very moment, you could turn around and confront the person who's chasing you. Or you would no longer be afraid because you would realize, oh, this, I'm doing this. I have no reason to be afraid. So if you understand, by the way, when I say this lucid dream, is there, anybody confused about what I'm talking about? Okay, so everybody's had a lucid dream or knows the idea. Right. It's very helpful to know that because... As I understand the dharmas, I understand Buddhism, what they're talking about is that this is a dream, again, some kind of weird collective dream, but it's of the same nature, and the things that we're afraid of, the things that are chasing us here, are ourself. They're, it's us. And we could wake up to what's going on here and turn around and confront that fearlessly. The reason why fearlessness is a quality of a Buddha is because that's the idea. As soon as you wake up to the dream, like, oh, I have nothing to be afraid of here. All right? Now, what I want you to see, though, is that what's happening is, is that in my lucid dream metaphor, I was sort of deluded by the dream, right? I was tricked by the lakshana of it, and I wanted to go get the things, or I wanted to fly around or whatever, right? I was tricked by the lakshana, but then I became lucid. I woke up. I'm still in the dream, right? I haven't like actually woken up in bed. I'm in the dream, same dream, but not, right? Because now I, it's like, oh, I get it now. Whereas before I thought I was like at its mercy. I was like, oh, what's going to happen here, right? So if you understand the lucid dream as being like a, a, a form of Bodhi, an awakening, Oh, an awakening where you realize, oh, this is a dream. But again, you haven't woken up like out of bed. You just are aware of what's going on and therefore no longer suffering from it. Buddhism is saying this is a collective dream and there is a way of living lucidly. There is a way of waking up. Buddha, a way of waking up here. And it would feel like a lucid dream in which you would be like, Oh, I get all this and I'm no longer afraid of it. That's Buddha. Buddha is full lucidity and then full fearlessness because of that. And if you really want to understand what's going on in the dream world in terms of what's creating all this, 
It's dependent origination. Pratitya Samadpata is at work here and in the dream. It's the exact same phenomena happening, which is, oh, look, mistaken Lakshana, bing, 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 stuff, 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 want, want, want. Reproduce, reproduce, meaning reproduce those things, those ideas. Say, I'm sorry. Round, round, round. Sorry, I'm like, yeah, yeah. Because there's no term compared like the opposite of duality. That's so non-dual is just not dual, which the difference to nirvana and samsara. Because now we have nirvana, you know. I wish it would say like non-samsara or something, you know. Mm-hmm. Then our mind would get less attached to nirvana. So mm-hmm. we <laughs> wouldn't have that language. So then the second comment we have, um, you know, to the dream state and having a dream and having a lucid dream, for me there's still, um, and I think most of us had lucid dreams, or even especially when we were a child, it's easier, but even, you know, there's still the sense of, so I'm not really getting, there's still the sense of I am having a dream, we have this dream, and that the reason why we perceive everything as we're perceiving because there's this clinging to this eye, right? So even like I'm saying, oh, I have this dream, I wake up in this dream, yes, but going not further, but thinking it through, you know, like asking who even has this dream, who is this eye, who is this self, right? And to me that, that helps me kind of to... Mm-hmm. Yeah, on that line of thought, just the next time you have a lucid dream or if you're thinking about it, well, I guess, you know, it's a strange thing about, you know, if you ever try to look in a mirror in a dream, right? What, what do you look like in a dream? What are, you know, this is what you look like here, but what do you look like in a dream? Do you look like this? You look a lot better. You look a lot better. <laughs> I like that's a good answer. No, but it, I mean, again, I think that there's, I'm always talking about how like, the self is this, you know, presumption, like, oh, yeah. But if you really think about it, like, all of this uh, Buddhism and Dharma is, gets you to question what you think of as yourself. And I, most of us have just presumed a self, and then when you really start thinking about it, it's like, oh, yeah, what, what actually am I calling a self? What actually is that? And I think the dream state is a really interesting place to then ask yourself, who are you or what are you? What do I look like? What are my physical attributes in the dream world? Or, you know, what, and what relationship is that self to this self? And again, there might be continuity, there might be some sort of karmic relationship, but the actual identification with the dream self and this self, that might just be a convenience, if you understand what I'm saying. If, uh, it might not actually be the same self. In other words, our, our sense of that singularity, that sense of singular self might also be that illusion, and that we might be far more complicated in terms of consciousness if we think about it, I guess. <laughs> no? Well, kind of a related thing I've been thinking about. Um, okay, so in a dream, I mean, you've described this before, but the way you described it today really was much clearer to me. You know, I'm, let's say that the dream is entirely created in my mind, and so in the dream there's me, and there's you know, someone scary, and there's someone cute, but they're actually all me. Mm-hmm. But, but then when I wake up, this me, the thought that ah. all these, right? Yep. Then, so if you're comparing that to reality, or to this, what? let's say, <laughs> call it reality. Yep. And, and we're saying, oh, in, in just such a way, this could all be a dream. I'm totally cool with that. 
cooler than I've ever been. <laughs> However, I've seen a difference in that for, I'm, I'm wondering about the me waking up versus us waking up. And I'm wondering if this is a way of thinking of collective awakening. And so just as, even if, even if we think of this as a dream and we all have this convention that that's a bowl and you think it's a bowl and I think it's a bowl and you think it's a bowl, cool, we all agree it's a bowl. Can we also all agree on, on the waking up? Can we all <laughs> wake up together? Or, or is there even such a thing as waking up if it's not all together? Exactly. Mm -hmm. And so if I were to wake up, would it be just like a dream where I wake up and I'm like, oh yeah, it's me, all y'all, you're just me. Or, and or, mm -hmm. could, you know, Dave and I talk about what's going on and actually wake up together. Do you see what I'm saying? I do. I do. Yeah. I, I think they're great inquiries. I, I don't know, but I, they're great inquiries. <laughs> yeah. It, it, it often happens in, in a lucid dream. You may realize a dream. You turn to the other people around and say, hey, this is a dream, everybody. And they say, ah, this is a dream. <laughs> <laughs> it's happened several times. Yeah. No, I mean, I have also had very strange uh, uh, encounters trying to question dream people. And when you start asking them, because after reading a sutra like this, I went around asking people in my dreams, where were you born? Where did you, where you come from? I was at a cocktail party and nobody would answer. They don't play along. They don't play along. And actually they all got, they consistently, I've had this in, in dreams happen many times. They get angry. They, they, they start pushing me away. Only in questions of origin though. It's very interesting and ties into this a little bit. I'm just uh, curious in the, the Buddhist context and uh, these dream practices. I heard about the yogas of Naropa. Uh -huh. It's one of these yogas. Yeah. Uh, is that what you're talking about? Uh, if you want to ta you know, uh, go to such a practice, what would be the, the, the schools or the... Oh, <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's... Well, the only uh, traditions that I know of that do dream practice are Tibetans. And there's a book called just dream yoga, Tibetan dream yoga, something like that, that teaches some basic techniques that are visualization techniques for basically the goal of, of this type of practice in Tibetan Buddhism is to maintain conscious awareness into a dream. So most of us black out and then wake up in a dream, and it's actually that waking up that we fall under its delusion in that way because we just sort of like, oh, where am I? Oh, it's bowls again. It must be reality. You know what I mean? Like that's the way dreams work. But the goal of the practice is through visualizing usually like a, a flaming ohm or a glowing white ohm. You hold on to it and try to move right into the dream space. And if you and you would be lucid typically through that process or you would try to be. Um, because yeah. normally they introduce these practices like after 20 years of like working with the guru and blah, blah, blah. Uh -huh. You know, it's, it's like super... Yeah, and it's interesting because the actual practice, like going to sleep and using that space is one thing. And in Tibetan Buddhism, they talk a lot about um, dream gurus, which are actually meeting teachers in the dream space that may not exist in the this space. And then you have lessons with dream gurus or... I've related i've heard people who they meet their guru the real real tibetan lama or rinpoche or whoever but then the rinpoche lives wherever and then they have dream meetings 
and the person meets their teacher in the dreams and has lessons. It's a part of the, it's part of the tradition. Uh, make of that all you what, you what you want. Those are all relatively, for my research, relatively new, but the, the thinking about the dreamscape or dream state goes way back, but they only use it as like I've done tonight which is like to get you to think about the way your mind works, to get you to think about how uh, the one that I'm always emphasizing is this idea of in the dream, you have sight, sound, scent, taste, and touch, but without eyes, ears, nose, tongue, or body. So it's weird, right? Because in a dream, it's what I call monolithic consciousness, right? It's just one consciousness, that the mind might think of as, oh, no, that's what I'm seeing from what I'm hearing. But again, you don't have ears and eyes in a dream. So it's just a monolithic uh, mind situation. Yogacara Buddhism, or most Buddhism, is saying this is a monolithic mind situation that then, because the body is deluded into thinking, oh, no, I was born, raised, I will die, then I have eyes that see and ears that hear. Because like Gangutara says, if I'm attached to this body, then I have eyes and ears and I see things. But if I'm not attached to this, then I don't have eyes, ears, nose, tongue, body, or mind. And it's more of a monolithic mind-only experience of this. One last thing, because I did want to say it. It related to a bunch of things that came up. Think of it this way too. Think of the clinging, attachment to self. Think of that process as you know i don't most of us don't but i'll just speak for myself i don't identify with those things those are not me right this this is not me these clothes aren't me but this is i I identify with this so not that but this is me right and so that is part of the clinging so it's not necessarily like a literal clinging it's a conceptual clinging to the idea of what am i not that Not that or that or that. I'm just this. Maybe what's happening is, yes, we're suffering, Buddha says, because of that clinging to self and stuff and ideas and all of that. But think of it this way, too, in this dream possibility world, right? What if, because I'm clinging to this, my perception of my mental activity then all of a sudden appears to be between my ears and behind my eyes, the clinging then all of a sudden, oh no, oh, I can only see the world from this very tiny, narrow bandwidth. I don't know what it's like to see me from that angle, that angle, that angle. I only know what it's like to see the world from this tiny little bandwidth. So it's like 1% and then 99% of the rest of the consciousness experience. What if the clinging is what's causing me to have such a narrow experience? And if I didn't cling so much and my consciousness expanded to where it didn't feel so much like it was between my ears and behind my eyes, what if I let go all entirely and I could know what it was like to be David experiencing the bull from that? No, his perspective. Even the bull's perspective of being the bull. What if all of that conscious awareness was available to me, but because of the clinging, I put myself just in this tiny little box of consciousness. 
that is really imagining, you know, this sucks, I'm only here for a couple of years, and da-da-da-da-da. Just real narrow. We think it's just physics, that we're beings bound to these bodies like that. But what if that's a choice? What if that's a, pro a process of identification? That we identify with, not the rest of the universe. I don't identify with the totality of all existence and everybody in it. I identify with just this. Okay, just throwing that out there, the possibility that, um, yeah, that, the, that our clinging is creating this dualistic worldview. And that, again, like in a dream, we hold on to that dualistic worldview, but it, maybe it doesn't need to be that way necessarily. But perhaps the strong-held belief that it does need to be that necessarily is what keeps it that way necessarily. If you followed that last part, right? Well, like, what is it about our experience that we're not willing to let go of? Like, you know, what is it about, like, my personal Brendan experience that I'm not willing to let go of? Like, at a certain point. Like, conceptually, I can get there. Mm -hmm. With this, and the dream thing is great. It's like, the reason you don't know you're in a dream is because your brain isn't working well enough to figure out the, the, uh, the logic of it. Mm -hmm. But like, then you kind of get back into your regular life, our reality, and you go like, well, let me break this down. So I've always been a being. That's number one. Number two, shit's really confusing. <laughs> I mean, there's not like, yeah, yeah. like the ultimate truth of being is like, yeah, this is like a disjointed experience that is definitely like created, uh, you know, like my agency is very much created. Like to me, that's that's uh, that's where I try to enter. It's like, yeah, like, uh, worrying about what I need to do seems to like be a shitty sense of self more than <laughs> other things. Yeah, again, I, that, the, the dream comparison is a good one in that way of, of thinking about a dream or a nightmare even and then realizing like, oh, what was I afraid of? And then this is the dharma that we're afraid in this world, but we don't need to be. But we're afraid because of the clinging in that sense. So. It seems that, I mean, you know, like coming to total lucid living uh, is quite a challenge right <laughs> you know but but i feel like at least uh, any amount of it is is kind of useful absolutely absolutely so yeah <laughs> yeah yeah and in the japanese uh, zen tradition they they have this unique idea of satori and a satori is a a little glimpse that this might be closer to a dream than not you get a little glimpse into the, it's like um well, if I use the lucid dream example, like if you've ever had a lucid dream where you're like, oh my God, this is a dream. And then you wake up because it was so exciting. That's a satori. So in Japanese Zen, they say you will get glimpses of this world of lucidity, but it'll, you'll basically lose it. You know, in the same way as a lucid dream that you'll lose it. But if you keep having it, you'll get better at it, just like lucid dreaming. So it's a process, they say. And also, just on the final note about the dream, remember, be good Buddhists, middle path, in that when I say dream, whether I'm talking about the dream at night or this being like a dream, we're speaking sort of metaphorically. 
And that, like the closest that I could get to articulate is that it's like a dream. If you understand what I'm saying, it's, it's like that. I mean, it ain't this. It ain't what you think this is. It's like a dream in that diluted, wait, what is that? And all of that. <laughs> so. All right. Well, on that note, call me. Thank you so much. Oh, namaste. Thank you. Uh, more to come. Another suture next Sunday.